0: Let's pray. Father, thank you for something better to think about and the hope of heaven. And I pray, Lord, please write your words on our heart. And may we love being with you and reflecting on what you're looking forward to doing and reflecting on what you've already done. We put all things in your hands now and ask that you'll bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the midst of a series of sermons on education reformation. And this morning we're going to take on uh, some challenges. I want to encourage everybody to be sweet and humble. Uh, I've gotten a variety of text messages after the first service. And the last one said, you did not touch on my idol. And you're right. There's a lot of things I won't touch on here today. But I am looking to deal with the things that corporately affect us as we disciple our young. And it's important that we are humble and gracious and kind and that we just grow with each other. But sometimes we find that we have drifted off course. We have what our educational superintendent in the Michigan Conference calls mission drift. And this morning, I don't use the words cancer casually. It is something that is, these are things robbing us of our passion for Christ and the proclamation of the three angels' messages. So let's do a little preparation for the message like this. The message of John the Baptist, if you were to sum it up in one word, what was the one word? Repent. The message of Jesus when he started preaching was repent. God spoke through Jesus. He was God in the flesh. And he said, John the Baptist is Elijah if you can accept it. Now in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 4, the Scriptures tell us that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, He will send Elijah the prophet. What does that mean? It is a call for us to recognize God's preparing a people to give a message. And that same message will be along the same lines. Now, are we to live in this constant sense of, uh, of condemnation? No. There's no condemnation now, those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. And so this morning, I'm inviting you to come humbly to a journey in which the Spirit can speak, and whatever He says, we will do. But along the way, the message of of gospel proclamation has involved an acknowledgement that our feet are on the wrong path, and they are to move to a different one. Now, if you practice Seventh-day Adventism as a somewhat preferred lifestyle, it's a ritual of your youth. You come here every Sabbath. That's about all you do. This message won't have a lot of relevance to you. I don't think that's many, but I am challenging you this morning to make sure that you are a true seeker on the path that is narrow and upward leading. Our goal is heaven, and today is a day to think about how we might need to adjust course. One more thing I'll say before we open the Bible, and that is this that when you go to a physician, you're praying that that physician will do a good job of diagnosing your problem and then a good job of prescribing a plan to remedy it. But we all know that some doctors seem to have a particularly good gift for the ministry of health, and some maybe not as much. And hopefully, all are growing. My point is this, that in the day of Jeremiah, there were true prophets and there were false prophets. And what the difficulty of this day and age is, is that as we anticipate the coming of Jesus, and Jeremiah's message was a message of judgment, it's important that we tune our ear with the spirit sensitivity so that we can discern and test the spirits. And this morning... I want to challenge you to be a humble Berean. You know, those who examined what the Apostle Paul had to say, they searched it out in the Scripture. And for me, I'm hoping when we're all said and done that we have more encouragement for the path Jesus is marking out for us. No wagging of the fingers, no negative condemning spirits, no we're better than them mentalities. Instead, this morning, I'm hoping that we can go away with a collective sense of some things we may need to adjust and let go of and other things that we want to embrace more wholeheartedly. Now when an institution loses its way, it usually requires some sort of crisis to get it back on track. Some of those crises are seen by the general public and some are not. And I can tell you that in each of the larger churches that I've pastored, there's been a crisis in the beginning of the ministry. I don't think most people knew there was a crisis going on in the beginning of the ministry, but I can assure you about six and a half years ago, there was a crisis in this church between me and some of the leadership. I fasted and prayed for three days, and if it hadn't been the Lord's intervening, there would be no Ron Kelly in the pulpit here today. But through God's intervention, God brought elements of spirit and life and power and fruitfulness to our corporate journey. So this morning... If you happen to be involved with an institution in which there is mission drift, if you happen to be in a place where there's been a collective or corporate cozying up to the ways of the world, change is hard, and it always involves some form of trauma, sometimes for the whole organization, sometimes only for the leaders, sometimes in the home. But this morning, I want to remind you, no institution that's gone off course, changes its direction, its trajectory, without a little bit of trauma. Fortunately, the Lord oversees it all. And for those that might have a role in a Christian education institution, which, as I look out here this morning, are several and varied, I want you to understand, Jesus holds the tiller. The winds of strife are blowing. Some of the the gale force winds are blowing waves across the, the deck of the ship and its concern but uh, even this week, I, I picked up uh, my wife's grandmother's Bible and, and right in the front of it was that beautiful picture. And there was Jesus with his hand on the tiller and you could see the man and the woman looking over his shoulder. And she said, there are traumatic things coming to the church. Things that will try the leaders of the church in ways they've never been tried before for which there'll be no human solution. And This morning, those same traumas will be coming to the homes. They'll be coming to our churches. May God give us wisdom and confidence to face them. Take your Bibles this morning. Go to the book of Judges. Cancer on Christian Education. The book of Judges. And we'll be in the sixth chapter. Now, the commentary on all the Judges is a bit limited, especially in the inspired books like Patriarchs and Prophets. But this judge gets time. His name is Gideon. Now, We know that the Judges is a time of spiritual ups and downs. We could call it a roller coaster ride. This morning, I want you to understand that there's nothing new under the sun. God is the ultimate parent. He is the consummate spouse who's made a covenant with us. He understands what healthy relationships look like and how they work. He wired us and wove us together. And what we're reading here now is going to be another window on the heart of God as parent and life partner to the nation of Israel. It says in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Now, uh, to the degree you want to talk about God removing His protective hand and to the other elements of human relating, may this one thing be clear. When someone doesn't want God, he doesn't make him the primary focus of their lives. So if the nation of Israel says that covenant with God is a bit outdated, it's a little bit clumsy, it's restrictive, we don't like it, God says, okay, I'm going to step back. And in a healthy relationship, if you chase somebody who wants to get away, they only run faster. Now I want you to think about this. I'm speaking especially in a marriage relationship, of which, if you read the Sabbath school lesson, you saw that God wants and has a husband-wife kind of covenant with us. When a husband no longer loves his wife and the wife chases him, it doesn't make him love her more. As a matter of fact, when a woman loses respect, which is the cornerstone of attraction in a marriage, when she no longer has that mystique, that feminine mystique that can't be fully defined and certainly can't be fully controlled, when she loses those things and the husband starts losing his way and looking other places, chasing is the wrong direction. And in this case, God understanding that respect is at the center of all human relationships says, okay, if it's not me, I'll step back. In the process of stepping back, we have a completely different level of dysfunction In this case, the absence of protection is the instrumentality for awakening the nation to its faithlessness in the covenant. Now, this has not changed. When we read the book of Hosea, Hosea and Haggai especially, and we see the failure to do what is right, God says, okay, we have this relationship. We're not going to have a partnership of trust and respect anymore, so I'm going to step back. And as he steps back, we see the absence of prosperity, the absence of security. That's what's happening here. The Midianites are coming up, and whenever the fruits on the tree and the uh, fields are ripe with grain, they come in like a horde. They rob and they pillage. They take the animals, and it leaves the Israelites hiding out. Now, in verse 8, we see that God begins to wake them up. He wants the relationship to work. We'll start with verse 6. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. It's like the prodigal in the pig pen. His misery overcame his pride. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. They were ready to listen. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of your oppressors. And I dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you've not obeyed me. Now, when we walk away from God, we are walking into the arms of insecurity. We are walking into the arms of trouble and trauma and dysfunction. This is what the prodigal son finds out in the New Testament. It's what the whole nation is experiencing here. But God comes with a prophetic message, and he says it could be different if you want it to be. Now, God doesn't force anybody, but life is about choosing. And so whether it's a relationship with an adolescent child, I can remember some of, one of my boys in particular would threaten me that he was going to enroll in the Army or the Marines. And I said, that's your choice if you choose to do that that's up to you if uh, I had an intern once who worked in the Navy and he said Navy stands for never again volunteer yourself (laughs) and I understood that surrendering your liberty as an 18 year old to the Marines while it is a noble task if you're called to do it is certainly not a journey of more freedom out from underneath the pastoral parent that you have and I left them with the freedom to choose God values the freedom to choose, which is why apostasy is possible, and it's also how love can be born. And so here we are, the message has come, and now it's time for God to move on someone's heart for deliverance. Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now it's important for you to understand this was a distinguished family in Israel. Not that it was large and powerful, but all of Gideon's brothers were valiant fighters, and they had all been slain in the onslaught between the Amalekites, the Midianites, and those that came into the into the land. All that's left of Joash's family is this man and he's so desperate to hang on to a little food that instead of having the ox thresh out the grain, he's down in the wine press where nobody can see him doing it himself. God comes and finds him there. God knows where deliverance is at, and God's presence is deliverance itself. Gideon said to him, verse 13, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, Then why has all of this happened to us, and where are his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Then the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian, have I not sent you? Verse 15, he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said, If I found favor in your sight now, then show me a sign that it's you who speak to me. Gideon goes into the house at the Lord's direction. He comes out with an offering. He's got broth. He's got the meat. He lays it on the rock. The angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ himself, Gideon does not know this yet, touches it, and fire comes out of the rock and consumes it. The Lord goes up in the smoke, and Gideon realizes he's been in the presence of God. Verse twenty two. When Gideon saw that it was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you will not die. Then Gideon built there an altar to the Lord, and he named it the Lord is peace, and to this day it is still an Oprah of the Abizrites. Now it gets tough. Before he's going to go face off with the Midianites, he's got to face off with his own family. Listen to me very carefully right now. This is where the hardest battle is going to be. I'm going to talk about some interesting things in the rest of this sermon. And some of it's going to pit a husband against a wife and a wife against a husband. And some of it's going to pit parents against kids and kids against parents. But the deliverance of Jesus begins in the home and it begins with a war on idolatry before it's a war on oppression and that's where the hardest part of this battle is at today and that's why as a church today I'm talking to you because we comprise the community that supports these educational systems and it's our families that are the feeders into the broader culture of the school so what happens in your home is imminently important and God is going to say to Gideon your first battle is going to be to go against all your family members all the citizens of your city, and your dad. Take your father's bull. By the way, this this idol will be identified as his father's idol. Take your father's bull, verse 25, and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold in order to in an orderly manner, and take a second bowl, and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household, and of the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. Now there's good hope here, friends, because most of us can look and see into our family's life's issues. And by the way, I've never met a single person in the Seventh-day Adventist church who has an idol in their life, at least not by self-examination. Every single person I've ever dealt with where I have to talk about something that's painfully wounding their spirituality, their leadership or something else, oh, that doesn't exist. That's not a problem. And my guess is today there's 200 plus people listening to me for which the same natural human tendency exists. That's not an idol in my life. And I've walked up and down the stairways of the hotels in India and I've driven by the temples in India and I've looked up at the huge monkey god bigger than our Statue of Liberty carved out of stone on the plains of Southeast India where there are visible idols and where people tattoo the numbers of their Hindu god on their forearms. I've been to these places. But we come to America and it appears that Americans are not plagued with idolatry. A slight little chuckle through the congregation. A slight little wince of maybe not so. So while you're not erecting typically in your homes the high places, I'd like to suggest this morning that the biggest challenges coming out of this message aren't going to be between the church and the educational system. They're going to be between family members who take their well-being Uh, and encouragement from each other under a household roof in which the culture of the world has found its way into the culture of their heart and their home and their habits. I want you to think about this. If ever there was a day for leadership, it's today. There may be a little crisis, a little trauma in the home because there may be a dad here or a mom here whose spine is stiffened by the Holy Spirit. And they say, you know what? This has been warring against the spirituality of this household for a long time. And it's got to go. And if you're afraid, that's okay, especially you ladies. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, where God says you need to be of the order of Sarah without fear? The good news is the fear goes away as the faith comes in. But if you start out afraid, don't be too worried about it. Most of us are, and we need a little special boost, which is why before this story's over, there's more signs and wonders. Now, God's not in the habit of just doling out signs all the time to where we don't have to use our brains or get down on our knees and pray but if we're in the beginning of a journey and we need a little extra encouragement go ahead and ask for it I got it on this journey I haven't got to the hard part of the message yet but I want to tell you I wanted out of the message I had a person come and talk to me and they were concerned about what the title even said and uh, I wanted don't want to embarrass my congregants. However, my first duty is to honor the Lord when I stand behind this pulpit. So you can make decisions. You can decide if it's biblical what the pastor said. And then you can decide what God wants you to do about it. But the truth of the matter is, I want it out of this message. And so on about Tuesday of this week, uh, somebody came by the office who almost never comes by. And he's not a member of this church. And he used to be fairly high up in the work of education. And I thought, well, I'm going to tell this man what I'm going to preach about. I'm going to give him permission to... put me on a different trajectory. The only problem was he didn't put me on a different trajectory. It's like he put rocket fuel in me and then started sending me information so I could do my job in the name of the Lord. And not only that, he connected me to another person that had been high up in the work of education. And then the next day I'm in my office going through my piles of stuff and I come across a paper by the deceased late Dr. K, who was one of our interim principals and a spiritual educator in our community in more than one place, And it's on the very subject matter that I have to preach on. It's like, what are the odds? They aren't odds. They're divine prompts. And that's why this morning we're going down this road. You know, it'd be nice the last Sabbath or two before I go off to camp meeting to end on a gentler subject, on a not-so-challenging subject. But God says no. And when you need that kind of encouragement, God will give it to you. The fact of the matter is, he was afraid... But he did it anyway. And on the backside of it, it was turning out like he thought on the front. Verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of the Baal was torn down. And the Asherah, which was beside it, was cut down. And the second bowl was offered on the altar, which had been built. And they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched it out and they inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Now, I want you to imagine, your son has pulled over the altar of Baal with your ox. And by the way, the Bible says with the strength of an ox comes much increase. It's the Old Testament John Deere tractor. And imagine that one of those John Deere tractors has been disassembled and set ready to burn. And the primary focal point of the community is now laying on its face and the asherah pole behind it is the wood underneath the bonfire that's ready to be set. It wasn't just that it went bad, it went much worse than Gideon thought, because it wasn't just that he upset the community, he upset them to the point of murder. Bring out your son, verse 30, they said to Joash, for he's torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he's cut down the Asherah which was beside it. Now, this is an amazing moment in verse 31. And what a wonderful thing that a a younger person could stiffen the backbone of an older person. That's exactly what happened. That's why Paul will write to Timothy and he said, Let no one despise you, but be an example in speech and in conduct and all of these other things. Joash stiffens up and he says, All that stood against him, verse 31, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself because someone's torn down his altar. The integrity of one son creates integrity in the heart of the dad. And something good is starting to happen here. A man that was letting the community go the wrong way has a son who has a divine encounter after a prophet gives a divine message. And this one son stiffens the backbone of the dad who put these values in him, but it drifted from them. And this man says, he's not going to die, but any of you that lay a hand on him, you can die. He's done the right thing. It's not written in the Scripture quite like that, but that's exactly what's going on. It just takes one person. It could be a husband. It could be a wife. It could be a son. It could be a daughter. But when God directs somebody to do something, and they're sure they're not acting in spiritual pomp and circumstance, but they're actually acting in the humility to be confident and obey, God will continue to do good things. And that's exactly what happens. God is the one behind the pulling down of the altar. Now, I'm convinced this morning that the altars to Baal that I'm about to lean on, and that I'm asking you to lean on with me, are altars that need to be pulled down. And I don't use the word cancer carelessly. Members of my family have been afflicted with it and delivered from it. Praise the Lord. But I'm about to give you the chance to move with Gideon to prepare for deliverance. Our schools and our churches are dying. This is the fact. It's not just that they're not doing so well. No, it is a generational downtrend. And when I put the statistics on the screen, it can't be denied. It's not a decreased birth rate over the last 30 years because the birth rate hasn't hardly budged in the last 30 years. That decrease in birth rate was in the 60s and the 50s. We're now living with a birth rate of about 1.9. And that's been pretty constant, relatively so, with a little deviation for the last 30 years. Slight uptick, actually, in the last few years. We're not just dealing with strategic issues and problems. We're dealing with the fact that the Lord has said, I'm drawing back a little bit. My glory, I'm not giving away for the corruption that's involved in some of these things. Strong words, yes. So what's the first idol that I want to hook the bowls to and pull down? The first one is for all of us. I'm going to call it adolescent Adventism. Not a very... It's a good alliteration, and it's a very poor, very poor phrase. Adolescent Adventism. It's when people want enough of God to do things just like the rest of the Christians in the world are doing and feel good about it, and they don't want anybody bothering them. And how do you know you're dealing with an adolescent Adventist? Talk to them and if they have a big explosion where they get mad enough at you to not want to talk to you anymore, you're probably dealing with an adolescent Adventist. Now, I'm not saying that other maturational development might not be a problem there. It could be relational. It could be that the relationship is just raw. I'm not here to oversimplify it. But I am here to tell you this. We're dealing with a lot of people who don't want anybody to tell them they're doing what's wrong. But the Bible says the way of reproof is the way of life. And I can't get away from it. I didn't get away from it as a kid. I can't get away from it as an older adult. And if I do get away from it, the prophetic voice is gone and there's no clear clarion call as to where the path of life, which is the path of blessing, exists. My job is too difficult to me to walk outside of that covering, that covenant covering of protection that God wants to give me. The Bible says, when I was a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's right out of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. But we're living in a society that actually encourages people to remain adolescent. Focus on pleasure. Focus on convenience. Focus on opportunity. Duty, responsibility, those things, oh, they're not to be talked about. Guilt, shame, those are out of bounds. But the fact of the matter is those are spiritual symptoms of spiritual disease. And when they come to bear, it's only the fool that says, it ain't so. Yes, adolescent Adventism may be the greatest blight on all that we're doing. It's time for us to recognize that Christ is calling us into a relationship that's not particularly convenient, but it's beautiful and joyful, even though sometimes it's a bit hard. The second altar that I want to pull down this morning is child-centered parenting. This has been operative for a long time. It's self-centered homes Raising self-centered children, you get a few generations of that going on, and pretty soon the church, which was so robust to go to all the world in about three generations, can barely keep its own doors open. Something is majorly wrong. When I sat in the old Griggs Hall at Andrews University where I got my undergraduate training, I can remember Elder Carl Kaufman, who was the head of the department, telling me, telling all of us in a pastoral practicum class, that churches can be corporately self-centered. Self-centered. And how many of them are? As long as they're not too troubled, as long as things don't get too inconvenient, they just go on in the old Adventist cultural way. And if you think it was ritual only for the Jews, friends, you need to think to the 21st century because there are many an Adventists who's ritualistically going to the club and enjoying their nice friends, which are a cut above the rest of the world. But beyond that, it's not very different from what typical membership would look like in an organization that's really about benefit to its members, not benefits to the world. Yes, child-centered parenting, focusing the indulgent energies of the parents on the naturally self-centered human being that's called their child. Now, I'm not out to turn homes into war zones, but you do need to remember that the prodigal himself left home because the dad couldn't change. His first stewardship was to the one who let him raise the child. And while we need much wisdom, and while we ought to practice as much togetherness as possible, it should be a warm and affectionate home, as far as it's possible, any of us that have had a rebellious child understand that it's very difficult to have harmony when somebody is warring against parental authority. And yet some parents just get out of the way, like it's okay for them to push on to self-destruction. God... Wants the parents to be the first teachers and the first preachers. Now, let's say a word on behalf of our Andrews University professors. I taught for an adjunct for three years when I was new in this community. And overall, I didn't run into this. But rubbing shoulders with the parents, or I should say the professors, who were parents as well, I was appalled at the very idea that influential people who had never learned to grow up, and some of them with degrees and money, would actually call up and wrestle and bully for better grades for their kids. Can you fathom this? It is absolutely appalling. And it is nothing more than the unaccountable parent who's been used to getting his way, and he's instilling it, or she's instilling it, into the life of their child. Listen, when I grew up, I got the exact opposite. And while every method of my mother was not to be replicated, there is something to her modalities. And I understood beyond the shadow of a doubt, trouble at school meant trouble at home. The teacher was her stand-in. And while they may not always get it right, the authority they represented was the authority on the scene. And that learning how to live inside and under authority was a big part about having a society that was worth living in. We are not to raise our homes, let's go a little farther, let's let's just go a little bit farther. Folks, if you've got a great home, praise the Lord. Every advantage you have is to be shared. So in some measure, sharing that great home with the larger church community, in which some of the homes aren't so great, is a part of your duty. And to the degree that you protect it, is to the degree that you engage. But a home can be just as self-centered as an individual and it's even worse when it is. Listen, when there's a work be at the church, don't say I can't go because it would separate me from my children. Bring your children and show them how to serve the Lord. Do the kinds of things that actually make the larger family not at war with the nuclear home family. I'm gonna go to another idol I wanna pull down. It is the absence of gospel identity on our campuses. Now, we just spent eight days dealing with a a subject matter of social and sexual interrelating in regards to moral purity. It was called, You Matter, You Love, You're Loved, You Belong. I don't know what it might be, And of course, this tends to project itself farther into the upper levels of Adventist education. But I do want to tell you that in this union and around this division, there are schools taking money from the government at academy level and even elementary level. And of course, at a collegiate level, which compromises their ability to have a gospel identity. Now, the idea that coming out ministries is not warmly welcomed on our college campuses stymies me beyond all understanding and if it hadn't been for a mishap at one of our colleges earlier this spring they probably would not as of yet been involved but a mistake was made on one of our campuses this spring college campus And because that mistake was made, a rapid PR response, which was wise to do, was enacted, that allowed one member of Coming Out Ministries to be on the campus as well. Now listen, we are not in a position where we need the government's money if it means compromising God's cause. And we need to be kind, and we need to be loving. But the circle of accountability and communication between the rank and file that supports this whole system seems to have some element of chasm or break in it. And it's exceptionally important that the identity of Seventh-day Adventist values, the centrality of the cross, the call to holiness, all of these things are embedded, woven through the fabric of all that our teachers are and all that they communicate. And we cannot be in a position where somehow we are over a barrel in regards to the essence of who God is. This is central to who we are. Let's go for another one. Critical race theory. The problem with critical race theory is that it is a social Darwinism. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, it is an evolutionary way of looking at social structure that automatically makes the discussion between who has power and who is oppressing and who doesn't. Now, authority and power is a stewardship given by God. And it is a sacred trust. And the failure of exercising it properly is a blight on the name of God and our institutions. And plenty of mistakes have been made. And they should be confessed and they are wrong. But that does not mean that we as Christians embrace a worldly modality which has no place of seeing love and goodness in the social structure. We cannot look to the world to give us a structure to fix a problem that is in every single human heart. But of course, Christians have been busy amusing and entertaining themselves, not transforming society. So we have to turn over the, transvi- the transformational efforts to all kinds of secular entities who will at least do something. And the doing of something is important. But we cannot, believing in God, give away the high ground for how to create harmony in the name of Jesus. Social Darwinism makes no room for God. And there's a problem with the theory that you never have enough consciousness to properly calibrate your conscience. I want you to think about that. You can never be conscious enough to properly calibrate the conscience and you can never actually be good to do what's right because the dark heart without God will always look to leverage and benefit itself. Now think about this. I'm going to use a big word. I'm going to use the word ontological. Which deals with being. This is an ontological a theological and an illogical starting point for a Christian. You have to believe that love actually exists. That though these problems are real and exist, that God actually has a way of creating harmony and hope and unity where the world can only create frustration. Now I understand unconscious bias. It does exist but it can be explored, and it can be confronted, and there is a Holy Spirit who can lay the burden of guilt on those that are wrong, and the journey to liberty for the entire community and the entire group. Now, I want to think about the 1619 Project. There was a writer on the East Coast. I don't know if it's the Washington Post or the New York Times. It's been a while since I've delved into it. And the suggestion was that America is flawed from the beginning. Well, you know what? America has been flawed from the beginning. The problem for the Seventh-day Adventist Christian is that you either have a trajectory of good to bad or bad to good. Of course, you could try to become better. The book of Revelation chapter 13 tells us of America that she is a lamb before she becomes a dragon. Now, what does this say? This says that its sins are likely to be sins of ignorance because it has an innocency in the origin of its nation that is unique to other nations. It is a place better than the nations around it. It is a place of opportunity. It is a place of growth. For all of its systemic sins, there is usually a voice of confrontation and it is usually the Christian we have, not gone, we have gone from lamb to beast-like, not beast-like to lamb-like. Now, I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. And I'm just going to remind you all. I'm not going to take the time to look it up. You can get the sermon. Watch it online. Matthew 15, verse 26. Here's the question. Were Jesus' 12 apostles bigots or broad-hearted, broad-minded people? How come you're so unsure? The answer is bigot. They were bigots. You want me to prove it? Matthew 15, verse 26. They're walking up in the region of Tyre and Sidon. A woman finds out about Jesus. She comes. They want her to go away. Send her away. Jesus is going to draw them in. He's going to reveal what's wrong with them by playing into into their hand she is one of the most offensive people that could be in their presence she's of a different race she's Canaanite Uh, those were the people that were destroyed back in the beginning of the nation of Israel she is deprived and dark so they think but the light is dawning in her heart and he says it's not right to take the food off the table and give it to the dogs you don't call people dogs unless something's wrong But this lady reads the tone of voice and the body language. This lady's got more going on than the 12 men walking with Jesus have got going on. And she sees what's happening. She says, but Lord, it's not wrong to let the dogs eat the food at the base of the table, is it? And then he totally changes his demeanor. He moves out of the ruse, and he says, woman, great is your faith. He honors her. How about those Samaritans that didn't want to give the disciples' food. You know, James and John, they go in. That's in Luke 9. When his disciples, James and John, saw that they wouldn't share this food, they said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? What's Jesus say? He looks at him. and he says, you don't even know what spirit is motivating you. And he moves on. How about the Greeks in Acts chapter 6 that weren't getting as much bread allegedly as everybody else? You see, the church has always had the challenge that everybody else has, and that's learning how to make it work right for the honor and the unity and the oneness of all men and all women of all races. The truth of the matter is, is that that overlooking of food according to Acts of the Apostles was a supposed overlooking but the church came up with a plan and put it into action how about galatians chapter 2 peter he doesn't want to deal with those gentiles but he's converted he even goes to Cornelius' house but a little later on in his life he's up in antioch which is becoming the new head of operations for christianity and he hears that the leaders from the jewish church are coming and he quits sitting with the gentiles what's peter do The Bible is very clear. One of the most uncomfortable church services you've ever been at. Because Paul gets up in the middle of the church service and he says, Why are you Judaizing? And I want to tell you, if you were the Apostle Peter, and you weren't converted, which he was, but even in a converted form, you can go back to the wrong way. You would have wanted to slide down in your pew and just be gone. Paul does it in front of everybody because even Barnabas, he says, was carried away with this nonsense. And how about Acts chapter 21? You remember that? That's where Paul's been all over the world. He's hated by the many and loved by the few. And he gets back to Jerusalem and some of the leaders of the church still prejudiced against Gentiles. They say, hey, I'm just going to read it for you. They've been been informed, the masses, that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our custom. Now, I need to ask you a question. Was Paul teaching them not to circumcise their children? Yes or no? Mm, You sound mixed. The answer is yes. Why? Because circumcision means nothing anymore. It was a bodily rite of passage looking forward to the progenitor, the descendant of Abraham and of David. The descendant has already come. It spiritually has no meaning anymore. And Paul is actually teaching these things. And now they want him to take a Nazarite vow and act like he wasn't teaching those things. And he's cool with the Judaizing. And you know what? spirit of prophecy is very clear he went farther in compromising than he should have gone he made a mistake he so desired peace and to be accepted by the leaders of the church any administrator that hears this needs to really be listening people want to be accepted by the leaders that he does it and when he gets inside the temple they see him and they accuse him of bringing gentiles inside the temple court it's systemized prejudice and bigotry what would be wrong with a Gentile coming inside the court? Nothing except that the Jews had systematized it and the apostles were not above and beyond it and neither were the spirit-filled leaders of the church at least at one point in time spirit-filled. Yes, I'm here to tell you the world's way of solving the problem of differences in appearance and culture will not work, but God's way will. And it is love and dialogue and honesty and humility And sometimes apology. But we cannot embrace the world's secular, supposed gospel. Which continues to paint with broad strokes. And make some people guilty who are actually trying to affect change. And it's not okay. Let's go to another one. The institutionalization of sport. Now I'm not about to tell you that it's wrong to play basketball. I'm not about to tell you that games are bad. But on my shelf somewhere in the various places my books are stored, I have a book called Sport as Religion in America. Now, you should probably ask yourself before I go any farther in this message, do you think this secular art, this author, got the title right? and if he did then maybe we as Christians need to stop and think about what it is that we ought not to get into lest we lose the blessing of the Lord walking down the wrong path I still remember as the pastor of the Kokomo Church the singular I won't say that Um, doesn't need to be said I will say it this way though, it it drew more emotional life out of me, I hope it's gone on to be a happier, better church, but 30 years ago it drew more emotional life out of me than anywhere I've ever been. And I'm about to tell you partially why. We had a head deacon there. As soon as Monday night football started, attendance at board meetings stopped. Now, I want to ask you, what is so... This is more for the men than the women. What is so important about your football, whether it's the kind you do like this or the kind you do like this, what is so important about this that trumps the poor in our community, the needs of your own children, the needs of your church, the development of your person. I still remember the elements of my congregation. I I still remember when that young family started skipping adventures so they could put their kids in soccer or softball. I don't remember what it was. So now there's nothing about the spiritual programming for your kids that can equal the thrill of the sports game. And by the way, there's good things that come out of sports. I'm not here to paint with broad strokes, at least not too much. I've thought about the unholy emotion that develops in the intensity of some of these games. I could wish that there was never any unholy emotion that developed with me when I was in those games. I'm glad that I can say I'm sorry, but I feel bad for the impression that's been left at different times when I, as a younger athlete, engaging with some of the athletes at Indiana Academy should find ourselves on the wrong side of appreciating each other. And what about when the principal at Indiana Academy actually undid the varsity sports program? I'm not sure I'm seeing more meanness in a community than when that happened and I said to somebody who came and talked to me about they were concerned about what I was going to say in this sermon I don't want to embarrass you as a church member but you know what I've got a higher calling so I don't want to do it in an undignified way or a negative condemning way but truth as it is in Jesus is liberating so this principle had gravel put in his car's gas tank does it sound to me like maybe he tore down a high place And since they couldn't kill him, they thought maybe something else might get the point across that they weren't happy? I think I got a five-page letter. I was a member of the K-12 board. I stood in perfect shoulder-to-shoulder allegiance with this individual. He happens to be our education superintendent in this conference today. You know, folks, when I was a child... I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. The sports world is broken. The collegiate sports world is broken. When I was a kid, you would never see somebody do a dance of self-congratulation in the end zone. I grew up secular. I loved the teams my dad loved. I spent hours, probably the accumulation of days, weeks, and months in the median playing football. I was in Little League. I was in Biddy Basketball. I was not going to be, you know, an NBA superstar by any means, but I certainly wasn't the bottom half of athletic natural ability either. I love playing games. But when the games are in the way of the Great Commission and the passion of our children, they can get up at 5 a.m. in the morning to practice, but they would never come to a prayer service at 5 a.m., Can you not begin to see without an education in psychology that the cancer on the passion of our young people when it links up with the world is malignant to their spirituality. And God isn't going to stand around and say do it like the rest of them are doing it. You know, it used to be that college sports hid behind the idea that the amateurish was purity. Purity. And even the secular college sports world today knows that's a lie. College is getting rich off the athletic giftedness of their young men and their young women and there's even an accountability system in the secular world today why are we borrowing their model it's not good enough for recruitment it competes with the dynamics of spiritual attendance I have 12 things written by an Adventist educator who was educating at Andrews Academy while they were standing firm for this and praise the Lord they have listing 12 things wrong but you know parents are a creative bunch and they'll find a way to go around the institution. Could we have some moms and dads that actually read the Bible principally, pray powerfully, and read the spirit of prophecy? And could we not see that the end goal is heaven and that the world is in love with this and probably it has the ability to capture the passions of our kids too? One more. And that is the social studies of generationalism. Back in 1928, a man by the name of Carl Mannheim wrote a book called The Problem with Generations. It's a fairly new study. Probably most of you sitting here know where you're at. I mean, are you the silent generation? Are you the greatest generation? Are you a boomer? Are you a millennial? Are you an X or a Y? Probably most of you know this. Why is it a problem? Because it appears as Seventh-day Adventists that we don't understand the word disambiguation. Disambiguation. You see, to make generational sociology work, you've got to paint with broad strokes. So some broad strokes are really unbecoming, like all Gen Xers are, you know, I don't know. I won't even say it. You can get online and watch parodies of the different generations. And, of course, most of the parodies start with the boomers on down. But when you disambiguate data, you actually take the broad strokes away. And what Adventists need to understand is that we are to be part of the disambiguation. In other words, we are a subculture in contradistinction to the larger culture. But when we use the generationalized thinking to create methods like methods of youth ministry that cater to unconverted taste. When we develop secular methods of ministry that link on the unconverted levels, we are taking the data and using it to the destruction of our own kid's soul because the data is now working to legitimate desires in the carnal heart with which we think we're going to build a bridge And somewhere along the line, the appetites are just miraculously going to change. But they don't, not usually. One lady wrote, since I'm a Gen Xer born in 1977, the conventional wisdom is that I'm supposed to be adaptable, independent, productive, and have good work-life balance. Reading those characteristics feels like browsing a horoscope. professor from the University of Virginia told one journalist that generational thinking is just a benign form of bigotry. Folks, we've tried the version of Seventh-day Adventist youth ministry that shows movies and tell them it doesn't matter how you dress and it doesn't matter what you listen to and what you watch. We've done that method. We've been doing it for two generations. I had a ninth quarter emphasis in youth ministry when I graduated from the seminary back in 1991. We've been pushing the evangelical method of the crossless youth ministry model so long that eventually we have a crisis. And the only way the crisis is going to be fixed is if the Jesus who reached out to a rich young ruler who said no can keep reaching out to young people saying, I shed my blood for you. Would you follow me? It doesn't matter what society is trying to turn them into. Pavlov and B.F. Skinner, these behavioral scientists, psychological scientists, they did get some things right. But just because you can paint with broad strokes and suggest that this will work is no permission for Seventh-day Adventist pastors, parents, or teachers to embrace the modalities of the world and institutionalize and reinforce the carnal desires of a young person's heart. I know 10-year-olds that hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. I had two little girls come to me yesterday with a basket of money They had decided to buy some popsicles on the last day of school and sell them. And they were collecting all the money for the new property for our new school. There are all kinds of young people sensitive to the impress of the Holy Spirit. But if we give them permission inside the milieu of the church, the frame of the church, the structure of the church, to do what in principle and precept the Holy Spirit says don't do, You can almost guarantee that what you reap is what you sow. And if you want to reap appetites that will lead them right out of the way and walk away from the cross, you can do it. But Jesus said, I gave my life for you. And I'll tell you what, if I could have a church full, hear me carefully, I'm going to get close to Matthew 18 and I'll be done. You think of Matthew 18 as the chapter on conflict Matthew 18 starts by Jesus saying, Unless you become as a little child, you won't see the kingdom. If I could have a church full of the spiritual vitality of a spiritually touched 10 year old who wants to live for Jesus, this church would move again. What's in the way, folks? These are things that relate to youth ministry and Christian education. What else might be there? I don't know. But I do know that when an institution loses inspiration and growth, it runs in reverse. This morning, at the beginning of this summer, I'm calling every person listening to me to the foot of the cross. I may not have touched on anything even close to your life, You may walk out of here like one man walked out of here and said, Pastor, you didn't touch on where my idol's at. Where I really want to touch is your heart to follow Jesus to the high ground and leave the world's high places behind. It could be your entertainment or your music or your dress. It could be anything that hasn't been offered on the altar. But this morning... I'm here to tell you, the church is going to come back to life. And the youth are going to lead it. But they've got to be rightly trained. You know, the Mormons have something going on. All their young people have to go out for a year or so. Our young people. We need a program like that for our church, but it isn't going to happen conveniently. We need that kind of program because our kids will be transformed as they are the conduit for the message of Christ. This morning, I want to end with two songs. One... Is one that the older people will know, but the younger people should learn. And the other is a hymn we all know. So I'm inviting you this morning to let the master lead you wherever he wants to lead you because there's a battle to renew. The society we're in is sinking. And pretty soon they won't be saying, let's save the planet. Pretty soon they'll be saying, we need to save society. We're not too far away. But there's a battle to renew. And the captain is calling for you. And this morning I'm inviting you to make your time available to make God's name great and His cause strong. Let's stand together as we sing our closing hymn. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.